Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Well, my name is uh, Brother Brian, and it's, it really is a joy to be with you this morning. It's, it's a humbling and it's a joyful thing to, to get to be invited into a community's worship and, uh, and just to experience how you show up and worship the Lord. Uh, and it's humbling and it's a joy to be invited back after, after getting to visit and, and getting to, to share the word of the Lord with you um, uh, this summer. Uh, as, uh, as Josh mentioned, uh, I will be talking about Gethsemane, and it's, it's, one, of my, it's one of my favorite passages. There's so much uh, that I love to unpack from it and would love to unpack from it. This morning, I'm actually, I'm actually going to talk to you a little bit about what it is to be human. But the thing that I desire more than anything in any direction that we take with a passage like this, with Scripture, I want God to make clear to you how much God loves you. And so before I begin, can we just pause and and can I just pray for for this portion of our time? God, I was just talking with you this morning and and saying, you know what, God, you can... You have their, their drive-in and you have the music and you have the worship and you have the greeting and you have all the space in between and I just have a few words and God, would you even have those? And would you through all of this, whatever it is that might be put forward now, God, would you just speak clearly? as we need to hear what you would say to us about who you are and who we are and what your love for us is. So God, whatever comes out of my mouth, would you speak? Amen. So in the winter of 2015, I moved from Southern California to frozen Ohio. And what what had happened was I stepped down from a church that I was serving at bivocationally. And I had quit my career feeling at a dead end and feeling directionless and desperate and not knowing what I wanted or, or what God wanted from me, but thinking that maybe God was calling me back uh, to my hometown in Cleveland where, where something ordained might come together. Maybe something would become clear for me when I went from this place to this place. And God would provide somehow. But when I got there, landed in literally zero degree weather in February in Ohio, I I found that uh, the church job that I I kinda came out there at the chance of getting fell through. And I still had no sense of direction. And I was staying in an empty house in the dead of winter as a single man. And even as someone who up to that point in my life had struggled under depression since adolescence, I felt as lonely as I ever had in my life. 
And I fought with God a lot that winter. And one night among all the grievances that I was carrying, for whatever reason on that particular night as I was praying, I just burst in anger. And I said what I'd apparently been holding on to for a very long time. And I practically shouted at the ceiling in an empty house and said, God, I have never asked you for a wife. See, this is something that I was proud of, apparently. And in that moment, how good of me not to presume. How admirable of me to not put my happiness over whatever sacrificial call God might have for my life. And to let my desires get in the way of that. And of just a small handful of times in my life where, where I, I think I know that what rang out in the clarity of that moment was the voice of God speaking to me. I heard God respond with calm and simplicity. Why haven't you? And so I wept and I said, okay. And I named the desires of my heart without worrying whether they were right or wrong. I'm, I'm married today, by the way. Uh, my wife uh, is, is leading worship at our church, uh, Scarlet City. See, as humans, it's hard to know what to do with the humanity of Jesus. For 2,000 years, the global and the historical church has believed that Jesus was and is somehow both fully God and somehow fully human. Not appearing to be human, not sort of human, but, but fully human. And this idea of fully God and fully human is tough, not just on the conceptual level, like, like trying to uh, imagine um, a square triangle. Like godness and humanness feel like they're pretty mutually exclusive on the conceptual level. But, but it's, it's tough when we actually think through the concrete stuff. Like, like, could Jesus really suffer the way that we suffer when after all, he's God? Hebrews 4 says Jesus was tested or tempted in every way that we are, but could Jesus really actually experience what we humans experience in temptation if he was at the same time God? I mean, doesn't that somehow change the experience? Doesn't that change the equation? Like, I don't know if video games work this way anymore, but if you have the cheat code, or I don't know if you're playing Monopoly and you can just kind of take from the bank whenever, whenever you want, whenever you need it, doesn't that change the game for you? So really how much, like what it is for us to be human, is it like for Jesus to be human? Are we even really talking about the same kind of being human? And in a sense, all of this, all, all these questions get put to the test in Mark chapter 14, where, where we, just catching up to the story, if, if you haven't been on this journey in Mark here, Jesus, after preaching and teaching and, and healing in public for about three years, uh, has already predicted his death. And he's going to be betrayed into the hands of authorities that want him dead. And he's shared a, a final meal with his apprentices, which would, who, who really wouldn't have grasped that this was his last meal with them. And at the end of this dinner, he goes on a walk with them through, through some olive groves. That's what Gethsemane is. And while he's there, knowing he's about to be turned over to the authorities and executed brutally, he goes off to pray. 
in what will be the last moments of solitude he has before everything just spirals toward his execution. And so that's where we read in chapter 14, verse 32. Great. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. Now, there are several things that I want us to get and call out even, even just this far in the passage. Again, Jesus brings his disciples or his apprentices with him. These are the 12 men who have been journeying with him and learning from him for the past several years. And he asks them to stay back. But there, there are these three guys that Jesus in the gospel seems to treat a little bit differently. Like this trio of James and John and Peter are kind of his inner circle. He seems to trust them to see more of his life and the mysteries of his life. If you know the, the story of the transfiguration, where, where Jesus goes up to the hillside and, and is transformed in, into dazzling white and, and Moses and Elijah actually show up beside him, uh, this, this is also a place where James and John and Peter were invited. So inasmuch as Jesus calls his apprentices his, his friends in the Gospel of John, I have to imagine that these are his close friends, his intimate circle. And these are the ones Jesus doesn't ask to hang back, but, but to come with him while he prays, such that even before he went a little bit further, where he'd still give himself a, a little bit of privacy, it, sa it says that while he was still with them, he became distressed and agitated. And this translation, distressed, it, I, I think it's a good one, but if we say distressed, what, whatever uh, word our, our translation uses, we should understand that this is a strong word. The, the, the word ekthambeomai uh, is to be basically emotionally overwhelmed with perplexity. It, it's like another Greek word, thambeo, but, it, but it's like another level on top of that. And, and then the second word that Mark uses, agitated or adem, uh, adamaneo, uh, is to be anxious. So distressed and agitated, these are strong words. And friends, what, what I want us to see is that Jesus allows his closest friends to see him in this, overwhelmed and anxious, struggling in his soul. Even as he says to them, he, he chooses to say to them, I am deeply grieved. And that word is a compound word that has a, a special connotation to it, it, as though literally to say, I am surrounded by sorrow all around. And if I'm going into the Greek, I, I know this is really nerdy and, and like, what's the point of this? If I'm going into the Greek, it's so that we don't gloss over the language and read it as though Jesus just had a lot on his mind. Mark is telling us in a way that, that even Luke and John don't, even in a way that Matthew kind of softens a little bit, that Jesus is agonizing. And he lets his friends witness it. He wants his friends to see him as he is in the midst of this turmoil. And then he goes on a little further and he prays with as much honesty 
We see in verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And there's so much theology that hangs on this verse. So I want to just take a little bit of time to appreciate all of what's packed in here, or just some of what's packed in here. So first, I want to quickly look at what some of the other Gospels say here. And this is a practice of studying the Gospels I would recommend to you if it's not something you already do. I, I often say that we have this incredible gift of four different uh, distinct performances of the story of Jesus, written from four perspectives to tell kind of four different stories of one story. And, and what scholars generally believe, both conservative and progressive, is, is that some of the writers of these four Gospels sort of had access to each other's Gospels and, and were aware of them. And Mark is generally believed to be the first, and Matthew and Luke were, were aware of and maybe even inspired and, and used some of it. And that's not to say that they weren't independently inspired by the Holy Spirit, but, but Matthew and Luke seem to, to take some starting points from Mark and say, yes, and, or yes, but, to emphasize what they needed to emphasize about the story of Jesus for their community. And so all of that is to say that it can be meaningful for us to see this is how Mark says this, this is how Matthew says this. Isn't it interesting that there's kind of like a choice here? And so why might that be? So that's the exercise here. So again, instead of just taking for granted that Jesus says what Jesus says, let's look at how else this story can be told and is told. So Matthew says it like this. He says, Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, cause this cup to pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Or, or Luke says, father, if you desire, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Whereas again, if you remember, Mark shows Jesus saying, not if it's possible, not if it's really your will. Je Jesus says in Mark, without qualification, without hedging, without apology, he says it as an imperative. Dad, Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want it. This, this suffering I'm about to drink from, I don't want to drink from it. I want you to take it away from me. And can we just pause for a moment here and appreciate that Jesus, our God, who willingly chose to die for our sake, did so not wanting to die, not wanting to suffer, not wanting to endure all that he knew that he would endure. And it's after that, not as a precondition, but it's after that, that Jesus says, and... Even as I say that, Father, what I want is what you want. Jesus wants not to suffer. This is why he's overwhelmed with distress and anxious and surrounded by sorrow. And he wants what the Father wants. The reason I say that there's a lot of theology that hangs on this passage is that it actually drives a dagger into the heart of a very, very old very important but not commonly known heresy 
called monothelitism. Monothelitism, which literally means one will. And what it says was simply that Jesus, even if he had two natures, like we said, fully human, fully designed, had only one will. And to be fair, the temptation is to think, for example, that, well, Jesus said that a house divided against itself can't stand. And the book of James, uh, James says that people, uh, he talks about people who are double-minded, being unstable in the truth. So it stands to some kind of reason that Jesus, if Jesus is God, surely could not have been divided in wanting something other than what God wanted, having two wills. I mean, how would that even work, right? That's sort of what monothelitism said. But on the other hand, it could be argued that if Jesus didn't desire as a human, in himself as a human, in some way that could be other than God's own direct will, just willing in him, if Jesus didn't have his own desires, well, Jesus couldn't be fully human, could he? Not the way that we're human. So, because what it is to be human is to have a will that can bend away from or toward God's own will, that can align or misalign with God's own heart. This is what it is to be human. And maybe we could have a debate, I don't know, but we could argue that other, I think that we, I would argue that other animals don't do this. This is the blessing and the curse, the challenge and the hope of being human, that our will, our desiring is our own and it can be bent away from or toward God's own desiring. That's what it is to be human. And so if what we see in Mark in Gethsemane is Jesus taking his own will, his own desires and setting them next to God's desires and acknowledging their difference, even their misalignment in that moment, if, if what Mark shows us is that Jesus had a human will on top of being God, then friends, it must not be so terrible of a thing for us to have our own will, just to simply have it, to know it and to be able to say to God, honestly, God, this is what I want. This is what I want. I do, I want it. And God, I, I know it might not be what you want for me, but but. But I'm going, to, I'm going to ask for what I want and I'm going to trust that you know what is good and you're not going to be offended or thrown by my wanting it. Because none of this is mutually exclusive to Jesus saying, and ultimately God, what I want, Father, is what your heart wants. Unless we overlook this point and, and think that what this means is that Jesus simply uh, reconciled his will into a single will in that one instant, that maybe he just spoke these words out for our benefit in order to show us that his human desiring was always already just giving itself over to the divine will. Mark doesn't let us make that mistake because we keep reading this passage. And after Jesus prays this, he comes back to his disciples in verse 36. And it says, he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray so that, uh, that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Or we could translate this, saying the same thing. 
So, so don't miss this. It, it doesn't simply say he prayed again or he continued praying so that we might imagine that Jesus has just kind of moved on and progressed past this point where, where he's acknowledged that God's will is higher than his own. And, and, so that, and so that's just what he wills now. No, even though Jesus had already said, Father, I don't want to suffer, but, but not my will, your will be done. Mark says Jesus went back and he prayed the exact same words. I don't want to suffer, but, but not my will, yours be done. And if we keep reading another couple of verses, it, he tells us he comes back a third time and that, that seems to imply that he went up and prayed the same words a third time. And so Jesus prays, remove this cup from me yet not what I will, what you want. Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you want. Father, remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but you want. This is human wrestling. This is what Jesus demonstrates for us, not just denying his will, but wrestling with it, wrestling with the task of aligning his desires to the desires of the Father. And what I'd want to suggest is that this isn't merely the human will wrestling with the divine will, as though Jesus' human will was something weak and inferior and bad that needed to just be killed or destroyed or crucified in order for God's will to rule supreme. Again, I think that's the wrong picture. I think that's the assumption of monothelitism. The wrestling isn't the human in Jesus wrestling with the divine in Jesus, but, but it's within Jesus' humanity within his human desiring, between desiring what he wanted for his sake and, want, and wanting what he wanted for God's sake, between two very human desires. And, and so here's what this looks like in us. It looks like me waking up with my alarm in the morning and saying, I want to get up and spend 30 minutes praying in the Psalms. And... I also very much want to keep my head on the pillow. It looks like me saying, God, I, I want to want whatever you want for me. And, and also a part of me doesn't want you to take this, this thing or this person or this opportunity away from me. Or, or even, God, there, there is a desire in me to, to go onto some websites and look at some stuff uh, that you wouldn't want me to. And at the same time, I want you to be the one to comfort whatever is stirring anxious and, and disturbed in my soul. I want these two things. I, I want these two irreconcilable things. And, and in you, God, I, I want you to reconcile them. I, I mean, could you imagine if we could say in the, in the safety and the security of knowing that we are unconditionally loved and that God will never distance himself from us, will never separate from us. Can you imagine saying openly and honestly, God, I really want to sin in this moment right now. I just, I just do. And also, I don't. I really don't. F friends, did you know that you can talk to God in this way? And I promise you, God will not be surprised. 
I mean, and how much more so when, when we just don't know what God's desires for us actually are next to our own will? How much more ought we be, to be able to say, God, maybe this thing that I want is something that you actually want? I, I don't know. I hope that it is. Or God, I, I don't want to endure this pain right now. And I don't want to be lonely. I don't want what looks like this cross that's in front of me, even if it might be good for me to bear. I don't want it. You're going to do what's good and right, and I'll get there. But for now, this is just where I'm at with it. So in the 16th century, there was a spiritual leader named Ignatius of Loyola. And, and drawing on some thinking of others and, and a lot of theological reflection and some of his own prayer, he suggested that there are, are basically three degrees, he said, of humility, of, of how we can be humble before God. And Ignatius suggested the first degree is, is that we're humble enough to say uh, that, that we can't make up our own moral law. And that's just pretty basically humble. Like we can't make up our own notions of good and evil. So if God says stealing is bad, I'm, I'm not gonna steal. And if God makes it really clear that God's desire for me is to, is to donate my bonus, then I'm gonna donate my bonus. So the first degree of humility is just, I wanna obey. I, I wanna do the right thing. But Ignatius said, as good as that is, there's another step of humility where we realize we don't, always know what the good or the best thing is. And so not only do we still obey, but we sort of hold our hands open a little bit. And Ignatius says, even we admit, God, I don't know whether you're best served by, by my succeeding or my, or my failing, by my suffering or my having plenty or comfort. And friends, I think we could go either way on this one. I, I don't know about you, but most of my life, I imagined and assumed that the hardest possible way was always what God wanted for me. So I assumed that God wanted me to be lonely. And, and I didn't ever really ask God. I just assumed. And, and, and honestly, I can now see that it's, it would have been more humble for me to say, God, if you want me to be happy, I, I guess I can, I, I can let myself be happy. I guess I can get there. But for others of us, it, it might actually be more challenging to imagine that God might have the best in store for us along a path that's actually pretty rough. That God might not want or, or plan for us to necessarily succeed at everything. And that this would be genuinely good for us to have less rather than more. So we can actually, and, and probably often just not actually know what's better. And so we wanna keep our hands open. That's the second degree of humility. But finally, Ignatius says, all of that's good. All of that's humility. And there is a third and more perfect humility, which is where we say, ultimately, I don't wanna do anything that would displease you, God. And I don't necessarily know what would be most pleasing to you. But what I do know is that wherever you are to be found. I don't want to be found apart from you. And so if you suffered, God, give me a dose of suffering. And if you were rejected, God, don't place me above that. And if you emptied yourself, however I can, God, I want to get a chance to empty myself. I want to do what you did. I want to go where you went. And I want to endure what you endured. 
Where your love took you, that's where I want my love to take me. And so the first degree of humility is all about obedience, and the second degree is all about deference, but the third degree of humility is all about love. See, what all this means, the reason I bring all this up from Ignatius is that actually, actually it isn't everything just to obey, to just deny our will and our desires. There's actually more. There, that's good, but there's something greater. There's something greater than to just obey what we assume God wants for us. And there's a humility in saying, Lord, this is what I want. What do you want? What do you want? And now can you take my desires as they really are, as they actually are, and can you bend them and align them to conform to your own? And this is what we see in Christ. This is the humility that we see in Christ to choose what he would not have chosen, what we know he did not want, but chose it for love, for love of the Father and for love of us. Jesus' will wasn't less perfect because he didn't want to suffer and die. Jesus' will was perfect because he didn't want this, but laid that will out before the Father again and again as he gradually consented and let his desires be aligned to the Father's desires. He actively took his own will and he chose to make the Father's will his own. Jesus' will wasn't perfect because it was always perfectly aligned to the Father's will. Instead, Jesus' will was perfect because when Jesus wanted something for himself, it became an occasion by which to offer it openly and courageously and generously to the Father and let his heart be more fully aligned to the Father's own heart for him. Because in order to submit our will to God, in order to have our desires offered to God and to completely give our entire will over as a gift to God, we have to have one. We have to own it and not pretend that we don't have desires. We have to lay out our treasures, all of them, and trust that God will lovingly sift and sort and reject none of them and in the end make something good and beautiful of them in God's own love for us. And the good news for us in all of this is that as Jesus did this in his humanity, we can do this because the kind of human Jesus was and is, that our God was and is, is the kind of human Jesus is inviting us to become. And we can experience this alignment of our heart and of our will with God's through our laying out our desires before him openly and honestly trusting that, that this is how God wants to make our hearts more like God's own. So today, this morning, what are the desires of your heart? I mean, what is just, what is just true? What is simply so of what you are wanting or not wanting? Whether that's uh, that you want this hard season to stop kicking your rear, or, or you want God to stop being so silent, or you want friendship, or you want healing. And friends, you might notice some, where might you no notice some fear or some hesitancy to ask or just to name and acknowledge what some of those desires are in you. 
I'm not here this morning telling you that if, if you just name it and claim it, God will give you everything you ask for. That's not the point. That's not what Gethsemane shows us. What I want to draw your attention to is how the God of the universe and the person of the Holy Spirit is present to you and in you right now connecting you intimately with the God who sees and knows and loves you. And how that God is present to you right now and, you, and, might, and that God might just want to respond to that desire in you. And maybe just to say, I want that for you too. And maybe to say, I see that. I see that and I, and I don't reject it. But let me, just, let me just draw your desires a little bit closer to mine. Let me, just, let me just bend that a little bit more to the direction of my own heart for you. So can we spend the space of just a few breaths in silence together here and just bring out, allow to come out some of those treasures, the desires that we might be holding this morning and just lay them out open before the God who loves you and does not reject you and allow God to respond to you in love. Let's just hold that silence before I pray. tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.